I hope that each of you are having a happy Easter. It is so good to be with each and every one of you. I'm Christopher Mack, one of the pastors here at Vox, and we are grateful whether you are stepping back in for the first time in a long time or whether you are brand new, you just thought, hey, there's a lot of cars trying to find parking at that particular place. That's where I'm going to go. Um, we are so, so glad that you're here and uh, grateful to be able to share with you. Uh, the question I want to give you just a minute, not a lot of time, and there's lots of you, and I love the energy, but uh, I've also got a lot I want to share. So I'll give you just a minute to, to share with each other. When you hear the term fits and starts, what comes to mind? When you hear the term fits and starts, what comes to mind? If you want, share with a neighbor for like 30 seconds each, and then I'm going to join us back. All right. So would love to hear from a few of you. When you hear the term fits and starts, what comes to mind? Crypto. Crypto. Okay. <laughs> Others, when you hear the term fits and starts, what comes to mind? Adolescence. Crypto adolescence. I've seen a trend. Uh, others, what comes to mind when you hear the term fits and starts? Carburetor. Carburetor. <laughs> Lack of consensus. Lack of consensus. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Anxiety. Anxiety. Yeah. When I think about Easter and particularly being uh, a pastor, uh, it seems like this is, you know, I, I hear other even ministers say the kind of thing like, this is our Super Bowl of Sundays, right? Like, it's like, this is, I don't know uh, what Harmon has planned for the halftime show uh, to be determined later, but there's a, a lot of energy that goes into this and it's kind of uh, on the Christian calendar considered the day of days. And yet when we come to this passage in Luke, uh, as Luke tells it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of consensus um, as to what has happened or how we are to respond to what has happened in terms of the resurrection. We see confusion. We see bewilderment. We see at the very end of our passage a sense of disbelief. Jesus has come embodying God's love for the world. Empire, evil, sin, injustice has done everything to crush his life, to extinguish the hope that he sought to extend to all of humanity. And so we can forgive and understand, having gone through some pretty challenging and hard times ourselves over the last several years, the amount of trauma that was likely being experienced uh, from these first people who heard the news that Jesus had risen. We live in a world that believes that death and violence is the way that we find consensus, particularly when we are in chaotic times, right? Isn't that essentially what war is? We say we, we can't seem to get any further with diplomacy, so we are going to go all in on violence and death and destruction. Uh, 
many, many years ago uh, at a university here in Austin, uh, I was a history major, and I think in every single history paper that I had to write, I had some phrase that was something to the effect of, uh, whenever social cohesion is breaking down, violence is what articulates power. Right? This is the story that we tend to lean into, that when we panic, we tend to find oozing from our very cellular DNA. And so it can be understood that when these first women were being faithful disciples, when they were showing up, probably doing all that they knew that they could do, which was to bring the spices that they had prepared to Jesus' tomb, to further go through these funeral rites, just probably going through the motions. But isn't that often what we do when we've experienced immense loss and grief and pain and trauma? And so they're showing up for this moment to do what they know to do. And the stone is already rolled away. They go in and this place where they were expecting to greet death is empty And they are met by these divine messengers with a story that seems nearly impossible to believe. They probably brought some serious expectations to what they were going to have, right? Like the very least they knew, we've been preparing hard. We took a break for Sabbath, but now we've continued to prepare these spices. We're bringing them to the tomb. We are going to have some very intimate time with the body of our lost loved one. And immediately those expectations are challenged. As I've been preparing this message, I've been thinking about what it looks like to have a looser grip on our expectations and knowing that I was going to share that as I see one of the first moves of this passage is to say whatever we're carrying and whatever we're expecting, perhaps we just hold that a little bit more loosely. And so uh, I think that prepared me to chuckle when last night after uh, celebrating a friend's engagement here in Austin, I was leaving the party and I go out to the parking lot and I see that my tire is deflated. And I thought, yeah, this is, this is exactly what you want when you're wanting to get home so you can get some sleep before your Easter homily. You, you want to have to change your flat tire. This is exactly the perfect timing which I don't know what there is ever a good time to have to change a flat, right? Like there's not ever like a, oh yeah, I'm on vacation, the perfect time to change a flat. Or, you know, there's never ever a good time. But I will say that this idea of holding more loosely my expectations allowed what otherwise I think could have been a thing where I had a narrative of, God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? You know, what's going wrong? Is this a message that I'm not supposed to share something tomorrow? Uh, and instead to just be open to the moment. And I'm not saying that I had any major incredible revelations during that time, but I will say that I was able to just be present to it and even found that there was something, I don't know, this is probably like the eighth or ninth time in my life I've had to change a flat tire. And at first I was like, what do I got to do again? But then it was like almost immediately this muscle memory kicked in and I was just doing it. And there was something about the embodiedness of it that even though I was dripping with sweat on a Saturday night by the time it was all done, because it was a humid, humid evening. Um, But I felt more connected than I had even prior to that flat tire. So we see in Luke chapter 
24 verses 1 through 3, that they take the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away in the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body where they expected to find death, where they expected to see the old narrative that violent power is the thing that wins absolutely. It is the thing that rules over us in chaos. It is the thing that we as humanity have learned to do to one another. They were left with an emptiness to ponder. There are three paradoxes of resurrection love that I want to share with you that I shamelessly am borrowing, stealing from Kelly Brown Douglas. And the first is this. She talks about um, particularly these paradoxes of God's love that we find when we are facing injustice. And the first of that is that forgiveness accompanies rage at injustice. She talks about the fact that oftentimes we want to see these things as opposite of one another. If there's forgiveness, there should be no rage. If there is rage, then clearly these people haven't understood what forgiveness is. And while that could be the case, uh, Kelly Brown Douglas reminds us that forgiveness often accompanies rage, that rage can be this prophetic cry against injustice and evil and sin that says the world is not supposed to be this way. People should not be mistreated or dehumanized in this fashion. Sin, evil, and injustice should not be winning the day the way they seem to be. And I am mad and I am not going to just simply be content with a world that is not in the way that God has dreamed it that we can hold that rage. And perhaps when it is accompanied by a sense of forgiveness, we can be reconciled to God and work on being reconciled to one and another in a way that helps us to steward that rage so that we are not consumed by it, but instead funnel it for redemptive action in the world. And I believe these women were showing up And they were filled with all kinds of immense, intense emotions. And yet they are still showing up to do that, which they understand is theirs to do. Our scripture goes on to say, while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead. It's a question of what we are searching for, where our focus is. Brian McLaren reminds us that what you focus on determines what you miss. So what are we focused on? And what consequently does that mean we are missing out on as a result of the things that we choose to zero in upon? In Luke acts, there are three times, this is the second one of them, where suddenly two messengers appear. The first is earlier in the transfiguration of Jesus, and there the figures are at least named by the disciples as being Moses and Elijah, and they suddenly appear there. Here at the resurrection in Luke, these messengers suddenly appear, and at the ascension of Jesus into the heavens, In Acts, suddenly these two divine messengers appear. They show up 
seemingly at these moments of divine inbreaking to help hold the disciples' hands as they muddle their way through the seemingly impossible and unimaginable. They invite the disciples to consider that in a world of death, they are only looking for more and more death, which is totally understandable. And yet they seem to be suggesting that something more and something other has begun. We are no longer people responding to a world of death and violence with more of the same. We are invited to look and to respond with life. And at the empty tomb, they spend less time marveling at its empty status, which is kind of what I always thought the thing. I was like, look, the tomb is empty. Amazing. And instead, they invite them to entertain this emptiness and to reflect and remember in a new way what their anticipation of finding death being confounded might mean for the world, for their story, for all of humanity. They're invited to remember. They distraught, unhinged, and disheveled lives are grounded in sacred memory. Verse six says, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. We are handed over to a humanity that sees power, safety, and esteem as connected to conquests, dividing the world into winners and losers, acquiring as much as possible, imposing violence and death to any who threaten our pursuits of happiness. Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, the creative filmmaking duo more commonly known as the Daniels, share about the complexity and yet beauty of their own journey in making their most recent film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. No spoilers, don't worry if you haven't had a chance to see. But I will say, I think it's a phenomenal film. It's currently perhaps in like my top 10 films ever. Uh, I've seen it twice and plan to see it yet again. So highly, highly, highly 1010 would recommend. But that's not the point of this. Uh, in, as they were talking about making this incredible film, they talk about what started off, what was in the back of their minds as they were created. And they said, uh, Daniel Kwan says, right now, right, not when the 26th election started, but when things started to get really confusing in those elections, that feeling kind of never ended. It just ramped up because after four years of that, we had to go through an election and then we had to go through a pandemic all at the same time. And now, of course, there's everything that's happening in Europe. I don't think this feeling is that unique because I think life has always been chaos, but we've never been so close to the chaos before. It's literally in our pocket every day. And I hope that this film in some weird way, as chaotic as it is, will connect with audiences because they recognize this life and themselves in it. Daniel Shiner goes on to just add, and we tried to make an, an empathetic story about how hard it is for our parents' generation to understand our generation. They understand that there is some sense that we can pass on blessing and life and reconciliation to one another or we can pass on violence and harm. And the reality is that each of us have been parts of both kinds of passing on. And so what do we choose to do with that? And where will our focus be as we move forward? This is the paradox of resurrection love around a nonviolent resistance 
that exposes the violence of the status quo. Kelly Brown Douglas reminds us that even if we are acting as agents of nonviolent resistance to confront empire and injustice and evil, we should not be surprised when that very nonviolent resistance reveals and exposes the violence of our systems and of our world. That is, in fact, indeed what always happens when you take nonviolent resistance. That is, in fact, why Jesus was on the cross, nonviolently resisting injustice and evil, and he was executed for it. In Birmingham, Alabama, uh, very near the 16th Street Baptist Church, there are monuments in Kelly Ingram Park to the protest that happened there where children and preteens and teenagers um, were at the vanguard of this revolutionary action and the police and the fire department unleashed hoses upon them, unleashed vicious dogs upon those who were protesting, just trying to say, our humanity, our lives, we matter. We have a right to equality and to exist. And there are monuments uh, that show this. But one of the most affecting for me is that as you walk on this freedom walk around the park, if you're going to go, if you stay on the trail, you encounter some monuments of these dogs that literally then are eyeball to eyeball with you in these statues, reminding you of the violence that was exposed, that was unveiled at the face of nonviolent resistance. If we are going to follow Jesus in this way of confronting injustice and evil, we should not be surprised when it reveals the violence of our systems and of our world. And we are invited to anchor more deeply to God's love and to God's hope and to have a deeper stamina in the endurance of following Jesus through this. Verse 9 goes on to say, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tell, and they did not believe them. These women are the first proclaimers, the first evangelists, the first preachers who get to share the good news. And they have considered this and they are considering what the reality of God's love winning out over the world's hate, what life winning out over death means and how that might rewrite all of our stories, how it might shift our focus, how it might call us to be mobilized against injustice and to form God's beloved community. And it's kind of a no pass. Like kind of the, the disciples are just like, the rest of the guys are like, ah, I guess. I don't really know what to do with that. I'm not sure what to make of all that you're sharing with us. But they still faithfully proclaimed it. And we know eventually later in the story in Luke, these disciples will encounter the risen Jesus and they will believe as well. But they struggled to know what to do with it early on that Easter Sunday. And so if you find yourself here also struggling to say, what, what does resurrection hope offer me? What does this resurrection love mean after 
all that I've experienced, after the questions that weigh upon me, after the injustice that was maybe briefly highlighted in our world and then now seems to have been largely forgotten again, then know that you're in good company with the disciples, that as resurrection life is revealed, it is often that we too find ourselves following Jesus in fits and in starts. The final paradox that Kelly Brown Douglas invites us to consider in resurrection love is that division from unjust present toward making or towards a peacemaking beloved community. That oftentimes when we face injustice, um, we think, well, why is it creating so much division in our world? And yet Jesus himself said that, that he came to bring a sword, not thus saying that he's advocating for violence, but that instead what he was doing is saying, if you're going to stand with God and God's dream for a humanity where every person is beloved, where every person has their needs met, then that is going to divide you from our society that has a very different vision of how we are to order ourselves and how we are to see one another. A few years ago, I was in San Francisco visiting my friends, uh, Daniel and Alexandria Johnson. They, many years ago, were, were members here at Vox and They clued me into this now defunct app called Detour that uh, sort of took you on guided digital tours. And so I was doing one of those in the Castro district and uh, we got, or just really, I was just me, I say we, it was me, but I felt with the Detour app that there was a whole host of people. Uh, And we get to, we get and see we, I get to the Harvey Milk Plaza, me and my Detour app, and... uh, It starts to play a very famous speech that Harvey Milk gave at that plaza. It's the one that starts off, my name is Harvey Milk and I want to recruit you. You know, that famous thing where he was sort of playing with and parodying all of the ways that the LGBTQ community had been demonized, all the ways that people were trying to say, you've got to watch out this unsafe element that is trying to spread subversively through our society. And he, he plays with that and instead talks about that he's here to recruit people to stand up against injustice. And there's this moment there when he says specifically the following words, gay brothers and sisters, what are you going to do about it? You must come out, come out to your parents. I know that this is hard and will hurt them, but think about how they will hurt you in the voting booth. Come out to your friends. If indeed they are your friends. Once and for all, break down the myths, destroy the lies and distortions for your sake, for their sake, for the sake of our youngsters who are becoming scared. Now, I believe it's everyone's own decision how to steward their understanding of their sexuality and their gender and the timing of how they share that with the world. But I can remember hearing that speech, being in the plaza and imagining that there were thousands of people there and that Harvey Milk was saying it to me. And at that time, as someone who was still very much closeted as a gay man in a non-affirming space, feeling like that idea, that invitation 
to come out, to own my sacred truth, to say that God sees me as beloved, felt like it was a million miles away. And at that time, if you had asked me, I would say I would never believe that if I were to do that, that I would be uh, ever again in a space where I could share, this is the word of the Lord. This is how Christ is at work in the world. It seemed to me that the choice to come out was going to be then a, a need to change careers. And I really struggled to believe that both God could still continue to call me in ministry and that I could trust God to come out into my sexuality. And it has only been in the last year of 2021 that I began to really speak that truth out to more than just a handful of close friends. And even my journey here to Vox uh, was a significant part of God opening a door to say, I know you thought way back at Harvey Milk Plaza that there was going to be no way that you could come out and both be the beloved queerfully and wonderfully made person that I've called you to be and live out your calling as a minister of the gospel. But this is the way of the Lord. Walk in it. That journey for me, as someone who also just turned 40, has definitely been a journey of fits and starts. And I'm so, so grateful for the resurrection hope and love of Jesus which has seen me faithfully through every step of the way. And we're invited today to reflect over our lives. And though, yes, there has been hardship and challenges throughout for each of us, I imagine for many of us, we could also point and say, even if you still feel like you're in a time of great confusion and chaos, this has been the way God is faithfully leading me into new life after new life. And we are called to continually and faithfully follow Jesus into the creation of this beloved community. Let us pray. Eternal one, we are tired and a little terrified. We stumble forward inundated by this confusing world. It can seem easier to look to violent power to order chaos. Forgive us guide us, envelop our stories, telling them in light of love. Help us look for resurrection love paradoxically among us. Fill our hearts with awe, wonder, and hope. May empire subverting love remake this world. In your death-defying name we pray. Amen.